Welcome to the Milestones Motivation and Money Podcast, a weekly conversation filled with stories of business, financial literacy, careers, leadership, and resilience. Setting and achieving goals is key, whether they are related to your finances, business, or career. I hope to empower you with these conversations no matter where you are in life. I'm your host, Angel Radcliffe, and on this show, get ready to change your mindset and start your journey to achieve your lifelong goals. So if you need a little motivation to start your day or jumpstart your next project, tune in and be sure to join our community online at milestonesmotivationmoney.com. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me, Angel. I'm excited to have you here and have this conversation. And gosh, your background is so unique and learn more about you. So before we get into the thick of it, tell us about you and where you're from and how you got into this whole boxing arena. Yeah. So in short, I was born in the South in North Georgia, Athens, Georgia, to be precise, and just raised fairly normal, you know, kind of middle-class upper middle class. And, uh, and then, you know, going through school, being a creative kid, everything else I ended up getting very sick, had to drop out of high school because of it. Then thank goodness for my mom discovering what was the health challenge I had, because no one really had any answers at that time. And it was Lyme disease. And so we started treatment and that was a long process, but during that process, or, or rather when I started treatment, I was so weak and sickly and everything else that I wanted to be the antithesis of that. And that was to, you know, do, be something like a fighter or a boxer. And my father was a professional boxing coach. So that was my field of diamonds in my own backyard. And that's what led me down this whole path. Wow. Yeah. You, you know, I was reading about your, your backstory and, and I was wondering like, wow, it takes dedication to really get into a sport. So not only boxing, but any sport. And I've, I've tried boxing before and yeah. I was like, you put the gloves on and you're, I haven't boxed a real person. Sure. <laughs> what do they call it with the punching bags? I've yep. done that. And, I, and then you do it for so long and then your knuckles start hurting. And I'm like, wait a minute, am I doing this right? <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's definitely become something that's like really popular. You think about all the, the home workout equipment and there's, mm-hmm. there's a, I can't even think of the name of it. There's a, a boxing at home boxing equipment. Fight camp? Fight camp? Yes. Fight camp. Yes. I'm super popular, but a lot yeah. of people find that as a very intense workout. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, when you were getting into boxing, it was more so from a mindset and strength perspective, or was it really that you, before you had this illness, you always wanted to get into boxing? Yeah, that's a great question. So growing up, you know, I just had no interest. My father told us, my sister and I, that we were going to, that we need to do some type of athletic activity in our school years. And both my sister and I would not pick one. So he picked it for us. And so he's like, okay, if you're not going to pick one, I'll pick one and I'll pick one that's he felt was applicable to life. And so obviously martial arts is what he leaned towards. And he didn't train kids because he was a very, you know, imagine the character Mickey in the movie Rocky. He was a little bit like that. So he was very old school, didn't even really want to train kids. And so that's where he put my sister and I in a couple of different martial arts. And so I did that, but both my sister and I had no interest. 
And we kicked and screamed so much about it that he eventually stopped making us go. And so I just really had no interest, uh, maybe sparred a couple of times when I was like nine or 10 years old and actually did fairly well, but it was just not what I was into. And then it really took me really, as I started growing into, you know, becoming a man in my teenage years and starting to feel my inadequacies, you know, cause I was about a, about 125 pounds five foot eight, I had carpal tunnel in both my wrists, you know, I could barely pick up probably a, probably a 30 pound weight without my wrists hurting and things of that nature from the illness. And so it was just, it was really, it was a mindset. It was a character thing. And really about that journey that so many people go through that leads them to boxing. And that's of becoming, you know, a man or becoming a woman where you gain that grit and that, that fortitude and that strength that, not only sports can teach us, but definitely combat sports and in particularly boxing because of the nature of, of how, I mean, frankly, brutal it is. It is controlled violence and very important note there. It's very controlled violence in the sense of all the rule sets and all the protections. And you have, you know, three means of protection in there. You got the referee, you got your own corner, and then you got the ringside physician. But all that being said, it is the closest that we have in our, you know, awesome modern culture to, you know, really organize warfare on an individual stance. And, you know, when I think boxing, of course, you know, I think Mike Tyson, I think so many people will will probably think that name or Muhammad Ali, or there's so many people who are, you know, boxers or what people, who people would consider the greatest boxers of all time. Now, when you talk about boxing and you mentioned something, you you said sparring and Mm -hmm. I, I somewhat know what that is, but our guests may not know. So we may need you to break down some of the terminology and, and let us know, like, were you boxing real people? Are you, are you just yeah. boxing with like the bags or the different definitions of boxing? Oh, well, I appreciate that, Angel, because that's, yeah, that's something that people do get a little bit confused on. So <clears throat> it's uh, with sparring, there's a couple levels of sparring, but generally, if somebody is a relatively legitimate boxer, and they said that they do sparring or have done sparring or whatever. That's really going 70, 80, depending on what boxing gym you go to, it might be 100%. But there's, there's, you know, it maybe stops a little bit before a fight. One way that they describe it with the USA boxing officials is, uh, is I think you would stop sparring, I guess, maybe five to 10 seconds before you'd stop a real fight. Now, that might sound like a short amount of time, but in boxing world, that's a very long amount of time because a lot of damage, a lot of bad things can happen in five, 10 seconds. Now, obviously, like with, with our model that we do, we've really focused on when we spar internally at our locations with other team members, we keep it at that 70% range where you're throwing punches at someone else. Cause it's like one way that I articulate it as being a professional boxing coach, teaching beginners, but teaching anyone of any level is that, you know, we're always conditioned to not punch people, you know, rightfully so. And that's a good thing, but in the sport of boxing, that is the point of the sport. So I guess maybe it's like football where, you know, you're taught not to run into someone, but in football, that's the name of the game is what you got to do. So the one way I describe it is imagine if we were you know practicing basketball right now and i'm shooting bass trying to shoot baskets but i'm like purposely missing the basket and shooting it in the stands that's what people have to understand when they do start actually participating in boxing in a, in a sports context is that hey the actual point is to aim for the target areas and the target areas of boxing is obviously the face and the body now with the terminology though so sparring is that a lot of some people who don't know a lot about boxing they'll call doing mitt work where you hit the the focus mitts or hit the pads, they'll call that sparring. That's not sparring, but I know I've had 
plenty of moments where I, I felt a little cringe when someone was like, yeah, you know, I was sparring with my coach and I was thinking like, you know, you don't really seem like someone that wants to get hit or anything else. So really you were sparring with your coach and your coach is like 220 pounds and you're 130 pounds. And you know, you're maybe someone that's a little bit of advanced age, really you were sparring. No. Okay. It was actually, they were just doing mitts, things like that. And then of course there's heavy bag work. The benefit of the heavy bag is obviously you get to feel the power, get some resistance on your punches when you hit stuff. But one of the most amazing or actually rather the most beneficial exercises you can do for not only overall conditioning as a boxer, but also technical prowess and progression is shadow boxing. So many great fighters have always said that the two things in order to become a great boxer is sparring and shadow boxing and shadow boxing is literally where you're throwing punches in the air. I remember Ray Robinson, who was the greatest fighter in the history of boxing, at least in my opinion, he, his mom said that he was, she was all confused when Robinson would come home throwing punches at the air. And she thought her boy was going crazy or something, but he's really just practicing that art because you need to be able to, a good boxer can miss punches and stay on balance because just like with boxing and just like with life, you know, you're not going to land every punch you throw. So you have to be able to recover and be on balance when you miss. Oh, wow. And you know, you talked about shadow boxing and I have a very funny story. I'm not going to talk about it here. Much. <laughs> but you know, you like, you can, you can just think about someone who's just getting ready to fight someone and they're just like punching the air. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. That, that's my def- definition and my view of shadow boxing. When I think about that, I have a very funny gotcha. story, but, but you know, you know, I talked about when, when I first think about boxing, these big names in boxing and, and who people automatically think of, but I, I definitely want to ask you who was your biggest inspiration and, and boxing? Oh, yeah. Well, they, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Angel. So, you know, it, it, it shifted as I developed as a boxer and it often does with people that do compete in boxing. They start off with, you know, the, the common favorites that people know about like Mike Tyson and whatnot, but then they typically drift to find someone that they more relate to either on a stylistic level or on really like a will level or a spiritual level or their essence as a fighter. So I would say probably for myself, it was really, and there's a couple, but there's really two that really connected with me closely. One very closely. And that was Joe Frazier because I was a shorter, my father, it was also a shorter boxer. So he loved that style and that type of grit and nonstop pressure moving forward and grinding. It really is who I am in the entrepreneurial world. It, it really is just who I am in my life. And so I connected to that and also who I was with boxing of just that constant forward pressure, trying to grind someone out, throwing big shots, maybe getting hit with some shots, but just maybe not getting hit clean enough to get taken out. That's really who I relate with the most as, as far as their essence. And then the other individual is actually a gentleman, formerly Dwight Kwai, of formerly Dwight Braxton, changed his name to Dwight Muhammad Kwai, light heavyweight champion. He was actually the shortest light heavyweight champion in the history of boxing. So 175 pounds, he was about five foot five, maybe five foot six on a good day. And the amazing story about him is that He did not box any amateur fights. And normally individuals have anywhere from 20 to 30 to hundreds of amateur fights before they go professional. He had no amateur fights. He actually spent five years in Rahway State Penitentiary and he boxed in prison. And those were great programs that they eliminated, unfortunately. And he went pro right away coming out of that, actually trained out of Joe Frazier's gym in, uh, in Philly. And then he, within, I think, 15 to 16 fights, won the world title at light heavyweight. And that was back in the 80s. Oh, wow. Very interesting. So I appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to have to actually look more into that. I, I don't know much about boxer stories. I think Mike Tyson is probably 
of course, everyone knows about Mike Tyson. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and but, quite, but, quite yeah. a lot of stories with that. But let me right. tell you, there's a lot of amazing stories with, with the sport of boxing. That's what's so cool about it, right? The heritage and all the history with it. Right. Now, you know, when, you, when we talk about boxing, of course, it's a high endurance sport. And I mean, for some, it's not even, they may not even consider it a sport. Some people may consider it a hobby. But what type of dedication and stamina would a person need to, to really be involved in this? To get to like a higher level with it or um, you know, compete, let's say, or what? I'd say what even just to get started, like I, I would think that you need to be in some sort of physical shape. Well, so that's an interesting point. So this is a kind of an opposite to, you know, some of the things I'm saying. And that's that boxing is actually, if you look at maybe martial arts or combat sports, let's just talk about and utilizing it as purely a, a, a means or a method to stay active and get in shape. It's actually boxing is probably the most friendly to a variety of body types and groups of people. Why do I say this? Because if you take maybe some other modalities in the combat sport or martial arts world, most of all of those involve kicking, right? So it's either if it's stand up, it's going to have some form of kicking. And obviously ground is a whole nother sport and a whole nother game. But if you're doing kicking, it can be hard on the lower back. Also, there's a lot of instability challenges, which can come up. I mean, which obviously can be beneficial for some people, but if you have any concerns uh, with balance and things of that nature, whenever you kick, you go up on one leg and obviously there's some inherent dangers with that. So believe it or not, this is something that's become pretty popular over the years, but not everyone has heard of this yet, but boxing for people with Parkinson's, not where they actually spar and, you know, hit each other, but where they hit bags and things like that, do mitt work and everything else, because it allows them to learn a new skill, which as we get older, it's so important to keep our brain active by learning new things. It's a, it's a real sad path that some of us come across where we go into old age and it's the expert dilemma where you're so, you're so well-refined with your neural pathways at one certain endeavor, it takes really very little brain activity. And that is what can lead to early onset of brain deterioration. But if we're learning new things all the time, we're always having to force the brain to create new connections. So that's one of the benefits, but also with the intense form of exercise and conditioning that's involved with boxing, just from merely doing the motions, hitting a bag and things of that nature, it helps their body actually uptake, uptake dope, dopamine that's still left. And Parkinson's is unfortunately an illness where you have a lack of dopamine in your brain. And that's what causes all the symptoms. And then obviously, you know, you also gain coordination, things like that. So it's actually something that is, is far more available or accessible when done in the right ways to a wider array of people than really any other martial art. And of course, obviously jujitsu is a great sport, but you know, that's on the ground and that's a whole nother arena of stuff that people want, might not be comfortable with. Wow. And you know, you brought up injuries and, and such. And I know some people do consider boxing to be somewhat of a dangerous sport. And there are sure. you know, inju injuries that people can sustain. And we've seen some of the, the actually major boxing figures sustain different injuries. But yeah. what are you saying? And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And we can even cut this out. But are you, you saying did. that there's a different style of boxing to follow to avoid certain injuries or... Ah, well, so it's important to distinguish two forms of injuries. All right. So this is excellent. Such a great question. And this is really, you know, stuff that most people don't know about. So I'm really happy to speak on this. So you have, think about it this way. You have the, the physical body, right. And then you have the brain, right. So just imagine, obviously they're, they're integral, they're units that connect together and are not, you can't separate them, but let's just separate for the case of this example or explanation. 
So when you think about the, the body minus the brain part, boxing is actually pretty darn safe, fairly extremely safe in contrast to a variety of sports. If you look at, for instance, horseback racing, it's far more dangerous. If you look at football, just take outside the brain part, but every other part of your body, your legs, arms, everything far more dangerous and far more injuries, actually probably basketball. Honestly, I would say that athletes I've worked with who have played basketball probably receive more injuries in basketball than they do in boxing. There's a couple of reasons for this is because with boxing, the only point of, of contact are the hands. The hands are not really made to punch evolutionarily. They're really made to grab things. That's their biggest use. And then maybe to slap things and push things away. So anyway, they're not really made to punch. So therefore, you know, a boxer can create a lot of power with their hands, but it's not something they're able to do that often. And there's a whole other subject I could go into with that. But so in terms of the body, the physical body, it's, it's really not dangerous. There's really not that many injuries now where there obviously is a very obvious challenge of injury is with brain, with, with CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and obviously post-concussive syndrome and brain bleeds as well. Now, of course, these are things that occur in football as well, any other type of contact sport, but obviously boxing, you know, the goal is to hit someone in the head half the time or more than half the time. So that's obviously a big problem. Now, what happens actually, Angel, with boxing and something that's been changing over the past couple of decades, it has definitely changed dramatically in the MMA and, and MMA world, which is mixed martial arts. And so just think of UFC, it's changed a lot in that world and is, is starting to change very slowly in boxing, but honestly not fast enough. It's something that we're really convicted about as a company and as a brand. But a lot of times the brain trauma and the damage there that's done is done not from one big blow not even from sometimes one big fight necessarily. It's the constant sparring that these individuals do, these high-level boxers and mid-level boxers do, and they don't allow their brain enough time to recover because the brain can heal itself from small trauma. But when you compound it upon itself over and over again, day after day, some of these people, Angel, I've seen it personally on, on many levels, unfortunately, where they're sparring multiple times a week, meaning they're getting hit with punches. So imagine getting your head hit, smashed in by somebody twice a week, all right? And every week for, for years, and then also going out there and fighting. So it's just, it's completely, you know, it's, 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 very, it's very bad for the, for the human body, the human brain. Now it can be done in a better way. You know, can it be done in a completely safe way? No, unfortunately, nothing in life can, but it can be done in a better way, which means that you limit sparring to once a week to allow the athlete to recover between sparring sessions. You will also limit the amount of hard sparring they do because once you get used to the different aspects of boxing over the course of let's say six months to a year, it's not really necessary for you to even spar every single week hard with somebody else. It's important for you to take pieces of your art form and work on those things maybe with a partner and in a sparring context, but you don't have to be delivering punches at your full power and your full speed. So there's, there's many ways to do that. And it's a whole really uh, extensive type of solution, but it is a great solution. So, yeah, so that's, that's where boxing is, is definitely safe as far as you think about your physical body, but it's definitely has a lot of challenges as far as you think about your brain, but there's so many boxing champions out there that they, their damage was truly received in the gym. It wasn't received in fighting 
actually. If, if you would have taken away all their gym sparring wars that they engaged in, which like are things that I did too when I boxed, they would not have the challenges they have. And then the last factor I would say that my father would throw in, because my father was also a PhD in neuroscience and a clinical psychologist, but he said that with some of these folks, not all of them, but with some of them, you know, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're thrill seeker types, right? So you have to look at what damage occurred to their brain, not only before boxing, but sometimes after boxing through things, unfortunately, like so many athletes get into after they get the high and the rush of competing is gone from their life. They don't pour it into business or doing other things productive. Sometimes, you know, they, they do it with the bottle. They do it with some type of drug. Ah, thank you so much for, for that context. I think that's super important to hone in on, you know, I want to get into the point in your life when you stopped boxing and this transition to moving you towards actually owning your own gym, as I I don't call it a gym. I don't know if you'd call it a gym, but your own boxing facility. But, you know, if you'd like to share how that transition occurred and, you know, I definitely love to get into some more questions on, on entrepreneurship and and where life has taken you from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I was back in 2010, it was actually July 4th that I was doing some work to strengthen my neck because it's important to have a strong neck. And I was doing it in, in a, in, in a fashion that was not the smartest way to do it. And I ended up getting a, a, a initiating a neck injury that ended up interfering with my spinal cord. And so then it made it for, made it very dangerous for me to get hit anymore. And I did try to rehab it, everything else, but it, it just was, was not fixing. So anyway, I had to stop boxing and at this point, Angel, you know, I'm a high school dropout, basically I have a, a GED, but very little formal schooling at all. And, uh, you know, I'm here. I am I'm like 20, 22, 23, yeah, about 23 years of age. And I don't have much going on. And my father told me, well, you spent so much time investing in boxing, studying it literally, you know, to the point of just, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have a social life. I didn't have anything, but boxing. And he said, well, you need to utilize that, utilize it to coach. And so he pushed me into coaching pretty quickly within about, I would say less than six months, maybe about four months after getting that injury. And I begrudgingly started coaching people because I was, you know, I, I, had, I had it in my mind that I was going to be a world champion as a boxer, even though I was far from that. And so I started coaching individuals and started to discover a real love for that and a lot of success really quickly. And and one thing that I loved about it, because I was always so plagued with injuries when I was boxing because of having Lyme disease and because of having joints that were just very, very weak and, and prone to injury and also going through antibiotic treatment, that it was really enjoyable to work with other people and see their progress. And that's where I really got the experience of that fulfillment you have when you, you help other people achieve what they want to achieve. And I know you've experienced that a lot as well. And it's, it's such a a deeper feeling and a different feeling than you feel from only making your own success. And so that's when you're a fighter, when you're a boxer, when you're an athlete, and when it's all about you, you know, that's, that's cool. That's fun. But there's a much deeper feeling that you experience from helping others. And so I got addicted to that and real passion for that. And obviously everything I do, I put hundred percent into it. And, and so then what happened is I, I met my, who would be my future wife and business partner, Alyssa Braverman at the time. Now she's Alyssa Kepner. And she actually fought at that time, 20 fights in a variety of martial arts, kickboxing, Muay Thai, MMA, a few others, karate. And the funny story is Angel is that my father actually wrapped her hands for her first fight ever back in about 2007 or six. And I didn't meet her until about 2000, late 2011. 
And uh, so it was a little bit serendipitous, but her and I met actually online. And uh, basically when I met her, she had managed a gym successfully for about, about maybe seven or eight years at that time. And I got to see what my future could hold because the way I was raised with boxing and everything else, I didn't realize it could be a business that you could actually support a family off of and live off of. What I had seen is what you see most of the time with legitimate boxing coaches, which is they have a day job or maybe they're retired and, or maybe a municipality funds the operation, like a police athletic league or something of that nature. And that's how the boxing gym exists. So I I didn't realize that you could actually, you know, make a a model work. And so she exposed me to what that might look like. And then her and I together grew the concept and expanded that to to what we have now. And again, during that journey is this whole thing of really experiencing going from it being all about me as a fighter to then me focusing on other fighters, helping them succeed, but then going on to focus on other individuals that don't want to fight that have other goals with training and then focusing on growing our staff out, you know, cause it was, it was our baby. So we didn't want to let our baby, you know, trip and fall. So we were very protective of our business and it was only just her and I, and for quite a few years, there, angels. If you would have ever asked us if we would step out of it, we'd be like, heck no, no way we let our baby be alone. But, you know, we, we learned to, to share that with other people and, and then experience the joy and the gift of seeing other team members grow. And then of course, now expanding it to, you know, a business opportunity where we, you know, see other business owners use it as a vehicle to actualize their own dreams. Wow. And, you know, I, I love stories of entrepreneurship and prior to recording, I mentioned to you, I've been a full-time entrepreneur two times. Yeah. <laughs> it's a journey. It's definitely a journey, but Kepner Boxing and Fitness. Mm-hmm. Now, where is the first location? Yes, yeah, so the first location right here in Athens, Georgia. Okay. And you know, we started off in in a little little tiny like 800 square foot spot where you could really only fit a ring in. And you know, at that time, it, it just it, it was not. You know, started off with probably 25 clients, and then within about a year or so, we grew it to about 75, and then. After about a year of that, we had to move because we got so full and we literally had to move the model two times from the original location because we just kept on growing it. And and what exactly are the offerings? So I've taken a look at the website and I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, amazing. But definitely for for the listeners, we want to know what all do you offer at your gym? Yeah. So where we're unique is that, so in the marketplace, you kind of have like two main types of boxing facilities or gyms. It's funny, Angel, because like definitely boxing gym is the word for it, but we use the word boxing facility just because one of my mentors early on in marketing said, don't use the word boxing gym because people have a knee jerk response. They think of that, you know, think of the movie Rocky in their head. So, but, but it is what it is. So you have, you have the, the fitness boxing boutique, which is people might know some of these different concepts where it's, it's, you know, it's a great workout. It's a nice, clean environment, great staff, you know, they, they treat you well, but it's really honestly boxing or rather working out wearing boxing gloves. There's really not a lot of technique being taught. There's really not any type of progressive training occurring, regardless if someone wants to even get hit or not, but just actually, you know, learning to refine their punches and the movements and the concepts and and the beautiful art and even the history of the sport. Then you have on the other extreme, you have, the pure competition focused boxing gym, which typically, typically is a hole in the wall type gym. Typically there's no air conditioning and it's, it's not a, a very professional operation and, and there's, it gets pretty clicky, you know I mean? Don't get me wrong. You know, I got a lot of people, a lot of coaches 
I work with and respect and a lot of fires and whatnot that, you know, that's the, that's the norm in the competitive boxing world, but it's really hard for somebody who doesn't have any boxing experience to just even get up the courage to walk through those doors. And then, you know, sometimes the way, like I alluded to earlier, sometimes the way that they train can be sometimes in a, in a damaging way, you know, they, they spar too often, they spar hard too often, always sparring more. So anyway, you have those two extremes and we fit right in the middle. So we have the cleanliness and the professionalism and the accessibility to beginners that that fitness boxing style studio has. But then we actually have the authenticity, the actual teaching, and really the lineage of coaching that we teach that was passed down from my father, you know, to me and was passed down to him from Chuck Bodak, who worked with over 50 world champions. And he was also the Olympic coach for Muhammad Ali. Wow. And, you know, it sounds like very intricate details and strategy. And, and I know you mentioned earlier on that your, your now wife had a background in managing this type of environment. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I assume that she really brought that business foundational knowledge. 100%. Oh, (laughs) big time, big time. So, you know, initially, so it's funny, her and I dated for about a month. And from me first meeting her, I, I knew that she was the one and I was in love with her and, and she was coming off of a, a long-term relationship where she was broken up with. So she was not ready to get back into one. So anyway, I scared her off a little bit. And so her and I maintained a friendship for a period of time. And at this time I said, okay, I'm going to go on my own and start my own, you know, business and, you know, kept her boxing. She's like, well, Keith, you don't have much experience with anything business-wise or anything management-wise or anything like that. So, you know, what, what are you, what are you thinking? Like, yeah, you're a good boxing coach, but that's it. You can't run a business like that. And, you know, I, it's like one of those things with people in their entrepreneurial journey, if you really knew everything that you're going to have to overcome and everything you're going to be challenged by, you might not have started the journey. So sometimes that ignorance can be beneficial as long as it doesn't kill you. So very quickly though, within the first six months or so, I wasn't keeping track of memberships. I, I wasn't doing any real marketing or anything else. And so that's where I started asking for her help pretty quickly. And so she helped build out the systems to the point where it started to grow as a business. And then it was a, it was a cool effect that, uh, that she will attest to as well is that her and I have both had this real mutual pushing relationship where, you know, she pushed me to get my act together as a business owner to get up to the level where she was. Then she got that momentum going in me. And then I just kept on climbing up, climbing up. And then I kind of went past her for a little bit. And then she was like, well, geez. And so then she had to come up, push me a little bit, go up there and start ended up pushing me again. And so it's just been this really nice back and forth experience of her and I both challenging each other, growing each other. And we really benefit from our partnership because if I would have partnered with somebody who had the strengths that I have, which are, you know, coaching, I'm, I'm pretty good at connecting with people, things like that. And I found a real inclination to sales. If I would have partnered up with somebody else like that, the business would have not lasted very long. And herself, she's very much about systems and procedures, very detail oriented. And if she would have partnered up with someone just like herself, like she said, you know, she never really would have grown the business beyond a certain point. So it's been this really beautiful combination of complementary skills, which does lead to a lot of friction, but it's a good type of friction, right? When you get friction going, you get fire going and you light everything up versus if we're just both, you know, totally smooth and there's, there's really nothing to ignite between us. Right. And sometimes you need those different perspectives in business because That's right. if you have someone who's constantly thinking the same way you're thinking, it's 
it's always going to go in the same direction. You're never going to have any new ideas. So, so that's good. That's good that that worked out for you. And that's always a question I like to ask. It's more of like, you know, how did you learn about entrepreneurship? But I was, as I was listening, I was like, it sounds like it came from <laughs> your wife. Yeah. Well, it's a, so let me tell you though. So on that journey, then it became, so, you know, we maxed out her current knowledge and ability at that time of mm-hmm. what she learned from her hands-on experience. And then it became seeking information. Right. And so that's where with myself, I always love learning new things. And, and so that's where I started. And we've been, you know, it's been serendipitous how I ended up connecting a marketing guy out of San Francisco just by chance. And he started mentoring me in marketing. So that's something that I've become pretty proficient at. And actually, you know, that's really led to a lot of our growth as a business. And then and then going into sales from that and everything else, because one thing that really turned me on about about the journey of being a business owner and entrepreneur, like I know you experienced too, is that it all boils down to you at the end of the day. And really almost, well, you you really have to check yourself. You really have to make sure that you're not making excuses. And a good litmus test that I learned that really just transformed my perspective on that was, okay, has anyone else succeeded in, you know, let's say a fitness gym endeavor or anything like that, any type of business, or whatever I'm trying to do, has anyone succeeded at it and started at a worse place than I am, or has done it with less resources than I have? And if you look hard enough, inevitably you find that, yes, there are. And that's a good, you know, it's a good punch in the face to realize, okay, well, that's the truth. That's the reality, not the excuse that I'm making up for maybe to protect my ego. And that's one thing amazing too, that's been wonderful about the journey of being a business owner and and having staff as well as that. I remember one of our first full-time individuals he finally, after a few weeks of being disturbed by something, told me like, hey, I think you're messing this up, Keith. And I remember I was so grateful for him doing that. And I told him, I said, hey, look, sincerely, man, I want the feedback. Like I need the feedback because I told him the last thing I want is 10 years from now, which we're not 10 years from that instance yet, but we're probably about six or seven years from that instance. I said, last thing I want is for the business to fail, for things to not work out, maybe for me not be able to keep staff, not grow the business, what have you, everyone leaves. And all I'm left with is my own ego and my excuses of, oh, well, yeah, I couldn't find the right staff or, you know, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right economy where the truth was I was just messing up and I wasn't listening to any feedback from anybody. Well, that's great insight, especially, you know, having your own self-reflection and being able to be transparent with yourself and, and acknowledge your own faults because many times as entrepreneurs, we don't, we're, we're very stubborn. That's right. <laughs> so for you to do that's that, right. that's awesome. And, you know, I want to get into more of like the financial part because yeah. I, I do see that you have the opportunities for people to start their own franchise and really wanting to know how did you get to that point or who really stepped in and said, this would be a great idea and discuss those financial benefits for you? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So with the whole step of, because really, because franchising is, is just a whole nother business, right? So I think a lot of people, they step into it with the wrong mindset, thinking that it's just a pure compliment, which it is in some ways, but you have to approach it's a whole new thing. So really what happened is, with the birth of our daughter, she's five and a half now. We, my wife started stepping out of the business and we start letting our business, our current baby before our daughter, which was the business, start to stand on its own 
couple of legs a little bit and started bringing out some staff. And she started systematizing out her role so that she didn't have to be tied to the business anymore. Or the way that my father would put it, have golden handcuffs where, you know, your business literally doesn't operate without you. So we started doing that. And then I slowly started stepping out of the business. And then we literally got to this point in about maybe kind of 2019 where we were staffed out enough. Our systems were relatively refined. They're, they're honestly, they weren't anywhere near as good as they were just a year later from that, but they, they were going pretty good. And we had a lot of free time. And so things are going well, the business is still growing, you know, we're still bringing in revenue, everything else, all trends look good, but what we're doing with ourselves and our lives are not really growing. And so there, there's this weird kind of stag, stagnation that you feel and a little bit of depression almost of well, you know, what's, what's the purpose of all this? You know, what am I doing? And that's where I'm really motivated from growth. And so is my wife. And so we started looking there about kind of late 2019. Okay. Well, really about August, like what is it that we can do? And I had made those classic entrepreneurial mistakes before where I got, I like put on a boxing promotion and it did well. And I was like, Oh, well, I'm going to be a boxing promoter now. And then I started to detract from my core business that had worked, which was, you know, Kepner boxing and fitness facility. And so I was like, well, what can I do that's going to detract the least to still grow this thing? And I was like, okay, so obviously the answer is to, to grow locations. So is it, are we going to do the corporate route or are we going to do the franchise route? Cause those are really the two main options. And then with the, with the corporate route, the benefits of that is that you have absolute 100% control over every staff and team member, just every single aspect and every minute detail of the business. But the challenge of that is, is there is a massive liability. You are 100% liable for every single location, everything in each one of those locations, legally and financially. And then as, and as well, the, the, the amount of capital that can be required to grow that at a reasonable rate would be pretty substantial. So I was like, okay, well, there's that route. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we won't. And then we looked at the opposite route or the other route, which is the franchise route, which you do give up some control, but if you structure your systems well enough, you still maintain a certain amount of it. And then there's the, there's not the capital constraints in theory. So of course, everything in theory sounds better than, you know, it sounds better than it does in actual reality, but, but definitely going with the franchise concept is still as capital intensive, but not as intensive and definitely not as high liability financially and legally as doing a corporate route. And it kind of combined or, or added to really my interests and passion. So very passionate about boxing, very passionate about coaching. I started over those like 2018, 19, or, and so started coaching other business owners in similar niches, martial arts and fitness and other areas on their business to help them do some of the things that we were doing because they saw our success and they wanted to learn what we were doing. And so I, I really, I have that passion as a coach and I, we figured it'd just be a perfect blend and, and way to put it all together. So we started pursuing that finally made the decision really in 20, like January, 2020 found a excellent development group that assisted us in refining the legal aspects of it, as well as the manuals and things of that nature. Then the pandemic hit, we maintained course through that, used it as an opportunity to remove some of the, some of the extra things that we didn't need as a business and as a business offering in our service and refine the model, got it in line with the franchise and then start offering franchise opportunities in August of 2020. Wow. Very you know, I think when you get to that part of offering franchise opportunities, very intricate details and 
you must be at a very good point in your, in your business. But, you know, for someone who's listening, who may even be interested in an opportunity to be a franchisee, what would be some of those requirements for them? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, as you can tell, I'm pretty straight shooter. So for better or for worse, you know, I tell, I tell things like they are, but I do my best to frame them in a empowering way. But the, the number one thing for a franchise partner, and it's, it's actually, I mean, I guess you could say it's probably one of the number one reasons why people don't succeed in a business endeavor is, is the capital requirements. So there's a lot of different options, a lot of great ways for individuals to get their own business going, whether it's through SBA loan and things of that nature. But you really do want to have somewhere between forty dollars to $50,000 liquid or at least have some type of assets to to serve as some form of loan to get going but for as little as all in as about $133,000 you can get a location up and running have it staffed out have it marketed and we've opened up locations with as much as 50 to 60 members at time of opening so within a month or so we're already breaking even or making a little bit of money And because what we're passionate about is taking someone who has the right character traits. That's really what we look for. It's not about boxing experience or anything like that, because we want to train all that. You know, it's just like how I tell people that I speak to in a sales situation. You know, we're not looking for people that it's like, I imagine, let's say like McDonald's, they don't look for people that are are chefs, right? Or, Or hamburgers or people that, you know, do cooking, but they look for someone who has those skills of leadership, of managing a team, perhaps, and things of that nature, and also are passionate about helping people and passionate about health. And so those are the type of people we look for that meet those financial requirements. And then with the franchise world, it's a very highly regulated industry, fortunately. So there are certain limitations on certain states, but that's that's kind of the short of it. And aside from financial requirements, I know in my mind, I, I have other questions, but other people listening yeah. may have the same. Now, someone who who may be interested in a franchise opportunity, maybe they are not someone who wants to be hands-on. Is this mm-hmm. something where they need to be hands-on, attending at the, at the gym all the time? Or is it more of them just being an investor and, and managing a team or having someone manage a team? That's a great question. Yeah. So what we have done with the course of I would not be offering franchises and being involved with that part of the business if the location I have, and now we actually own two locations, we're not able to largely run by themselves. So if you look at my time allotment per location, you're looking at probably five hours a week, or maybe sometimes a little bit less, you know, occasionally a little bit more. That's the nature of being a business owner. But these locations, we we offer the executive model where you can... You don't have to be in the business, but you do have to have a certain requirement of an amount of staff and a manager and head coach. But what we're really passionate about is providing people with the systems and everything else they need to scale it, because that's really the constraints that I experienced as a business owner early on. And I saw my father never learn how to get beyond this point with his business, being a clinical psychologist and doing a couple other different types of businesses is that in so many small business owners, they never realize about what they never realize how to be an actual business owner and they really just own a job. And so that's where we're really passionate for those people that want to go on to have multi multi units as a franchise owner, which is one of the beautiful and empowering things about having a franchise is having that ability to scale. We want to provide all of the systems and everything else that you need to, that your manager needs to succeed, your head coach needs to succeed, the KPIs that you need to watch and and how you need to manage your management team. Okay. Well, 
thank you so much for that. And, you know, I, I, I'm looking at the time and I'm like, gosh, I can keep going on with questions because this has been very interesting and informative. And I'm sure you'll probably have some people reaching out. Keith, I appreciate you being here. And I want to ask you a question as it relates to, to my brand and, and the show, because I've, I've mentioned, I've done a few things on the side of financial literacy. And one of the pieces to my brand is, is balling on a budget. I know you've probably Mm. heard that phrase. It's been around for 20 plus years and it's also the name of a financial workbook that I, I offer in my workshops. Nice. So I want to ask you, when you hear that phrase, balling on a budget, what does that mean to you? Hmm. Man, that might be the hardest question you've asked me. <laughs> <laughs> balling on a budget. What does that mean to me? Hmm. Well, that definitely does mean living a good life in the terms of the enjoyments of life in, in a, a reasonable way fashion. So that's how we aim to live our life because, you know, you, you allow for yourself to still have the enjoyments that are important to you while still also constraining yourself so that you're actually creating a position where you can succeed because so many people I've seen it far too much with business owners and and other professionals where they are, they're not keeping themselves in a certain, a, a certain type of constraint to allow them to succeed because they feel like they're depriving themselves of things, but they, they need to realize that, Hey, you're, you're actually not depriving yourself of anything. You're actually being good to yourself and you're actually going to enjoy your life a lot more and you're going to be, be able to succeed a lot more. So I, I, th- I think, I think I, I connect with that. I, I have my own little heuristics, right? Mental shortcuts where I, I think of balling on a budget where I think of maybe sometimes it's uh, it's like getting things that look ostentatious that maybe don't cost that much. So I do have that connection sometimes in my mind. But uh, definitely though, I think the the sentiment of that phrase is something I really strongly agree with. Thank you for your own personalized definition. <laughs> definitely <laughs> appreciate it. So, you know, I always love to hear the answers to that question and there's no wrong answer. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you though, Angel, more people need to, need to, need to freaking need to ball with the budget though. (laughs) Yep. They sure do. Definitely. Cause that's how you keep balling. Right. And that's how you can be able to ball more is if you, if you do it right. Right. Which means, you know, budget, it's funny. Cause I know, you know, this in your experience, right. People think they hear budget. That's automatically like a bad word. Right. But it's actually the, the, what you need to succeed over the long term. Right. And that's in your personal life and your business. That's right. That's right. Definitely. Well, Keith, it's been a great conversation and I definitely want to give you a chance to say any last words to listeners today. Yeah. Well, really, yeah. My, my last thoughts that I'd like to share is just simply that is that if I can be of any benefit, you know, being on this awesome show or anyone heard anything I say, and if I've, if I've said anything that made you feel like, oh, like, you know, this guy's pretty cool or, you know, this guy's done something. And, and you think for one moment that you can't do the same. I want you to know that you're very wrong and that, you know, I have had so many gifts and so many good things happen to me, but I've also had so many struggles and I haven't started talking about this so recently, but I was actually legally disabled for a very short amount of time, but I didn't let that definition hold on to me. And it's, it's something that I'm very passionate about as people realizing that, you know, even though circumstances may be very, very hard for themselves at a certain time in their life, it doesn't have to stay like that. And at the very least, 
They need to discover an empowering message behind it. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Be sure to leave us a review and let us know any ideas you have for a future show topic. And if you really want to show us some love, share this episode with a friend and be sure to join our community online, milestonesmotivationandmoney.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at milestonesmotivationandmoney. Tune in next time.